Impact Pandemics, a series exploring the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Canadians and the Canadian economy. My name is Stephen Maurice. I'm the editor of Scotiabank Perspectives. Now, this is normally the farthest thing from a true crime podcast, but today we are actually going to be talking about some serious crimes, and we have a terrific guest to do just that. Stuart Davis is Executive Vice President, Financial Crimes Risk Management, and Group Chief Anti-Money Laundering Officer at Scotiabank. Stuart, thanks so much for joining me today. Great to be here, Stephen. Uh, a little background on Stuart. He joined Scotiabank in 2019 as Global Head Financial Crimes Risk Management. He has 30 years of progressive experience in leadership roles in Canada and the U.S., focusing on risk management and compliance programs with a focus on anti-money laundering, sanctions, and financial crime prevention. Stuart is a global advocate on anti-money laundering and the prevention of human trafficking and child exploitation in the financial system. He's spoken at the United Nations, at the Vatican, Financial Action Task Force, which is a global money laundering and terrorist financing watchdog. He currently serves as co-chair of Finance Canada's Advisory Committee on Money Laundering and Terrorist Financing, and is chair of the Canadian Bankers Association's Subcommittee on Anti-Money Laundering. Thanks again for joining us, Stuart. That is an impressive resume and a very long job title. Um, maybe you could explain a little bit what that means in terms of what your what your day-to-day role is and what you're responsible for at Scotiabank. Well, thank you so much and uh, great to be here. Uh, we run the, the second line risk oversight function within Scotiabank. And what that means is that we've got three lines of defense in Scotiabank. We've got the folks that are customer facing in, uh, in the trenches day to day. We've got the second line team, which takes a risk management oversight view and makes sure our systems and controls are working effectively. And then we have the third line of defense, which typically is internal audit that's independent and comes in and again, checks and make sure uh, everything is working. Within AML uh, and more broadly, financial crimes risk management, we're responsible for uh, the programs that help us understand what risks we are taking, both from a fraud and an anti-money laundering, as well as a sanctions perspective through our products and services. In other words, if we offer a product that's real easy for somebody to anonymously move money through, that would be a high risk from an AML perspective. Or if we offer ways that, uh, or there are flaws in our products that allowed a customer or a bad guy to get in to steal either the customer's money or the bank's money, you know, that would be a fraud risk that we would want to mitigate. So I like to say the fraudsters are trying to steal your money and the money launders are trying to steal your reputation. And so, you know, a lot of AML is about looking at protecting the reputation of the bank, making sure our products and services are used as intended, as well as are we banking the types of customers that are, are within our risk appetite, uh, keeping out those that may represent high risk or, again, uh, services that would make uh, both the bank uncomfortable but also impose regulatory concern. Okay. And is there, is there an example that you could give that, you know, a, a regular person listening to this um, could, could grasp easily in terms of uh, what does some of that mean in terms of the actual execution of it? You know, there's uh, hundreds of billions of dollars laundered globally, if not trillions, each and every year. And, and specifically in Canada, 
quite a bit of money uh, gets laundered annually through shell corporations and, and real estate sector. And this has been in the news a lot recently uh, and continues to be the subject of multiple hearings and discussions. So the typical scenario is uh, a bucket of money is made available in China, an equivalent amount of that is made available in Canada. The money actually never even moves across the border, surprisingly, but there's an offset between uh, two, two groups on both sides of, of these borders that allows the use of this uh, uh, money here in Canada. So this cash becomes available. It's usually the proceeds of uh, drugs or other nefarious crimes that's made available here in Canada, given in substitution for that money that's moved offshore. And then that is used to buy up real estate or luxury vehicles or things of that sort. Uh, Canada is renowned globally for something called snow washing, which is exactly what I just described. And so is the primary risk around around money laundering uh, foreign in that respect? or It's uh, the source of illegal proceeds and tax evasion are really the basis for money laundering. So and typically the large dollar amount moves through offshore vehicles. Uh, there is some domestic to be sure, but when you're talking about the billions of dollars that get moved, it's, it's largely those large scale enterprises. But there is also very small dollar risk that we'll talk about, I think a little bit later in, in terms of the human trafficking. It doesn't take much money to traffic an individual. Uh, here in Canada. And, you know, that could be a $50 transaction, $100 transaction, or a $1,000 transaction. And so we have to look at both the big and the small in order to be able to catch financial crime. Right. And I guess that would extend across all sort of illegal activities in Canada as well, whether it's small or large, both in trafficking and drug and drug trafficking as well as human yeah, trafficking. illicit uh, cannabis sales is a big problem right now for example right and so we're about a year a little over a year I guess already into the pandemic how has this changed the environment for financial crimes and how does the bank respond to that changing environment the nature of financial crime has changed as quickly as the the nature of the pandemic itself we saw the uh, giant uh, government relief programs globally and the fraudsters took advantage of that, uh, to be frank. And, you know, that money finds its way into banking institutions. So we have to be very diligent to identify that and, and assist the government in, uh, in law enforcement in stopping those types of financial crime. Uh, secondarily, uh, you know, the dynamics of how cash used to move and the money launderers used to shift those drug proceeds around and other uh, proceeds of crime uh, it's it's a much harder to move cash across the border these days uh, in this type of world. So, you know, a lot more move digital. And so we've seen an increase in the both the online attacks from a cybersecurity and fraud standpoint, but also the attempts to uh, move money digitally uh, through the banking system, vis-a-vis -vis wire transfers and things of that uh, nature. Uh, and, and finally, uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, the criminals themselves have adopted new ways of trying to scam people. So we've got to be ever vigilant about, you know, fake uh, pr protective equipment, fake vaccines, uh, other things that are being uh, advertised and thrown out there on the internet. So many people are spending so much more time on the internet these days that uh, it's becoming, uh, you know, I guess the, the new uh, target zone for many of the, of the bad actors out there 
uh, both cyber criminals, but also uh, just the traditional criminal element. So probably keeping up with new types of crime is a perennial challenge for, for you and your team. It's not unique to to the pandemic, but it was what were some of the ways that you addressed the new things that did rise up as criminals sought to sought to take advantage of the situation as it is? How what sort of measures were you trying to take to to identify or address those? Well, first and foremost, we're always looking for ways that we can strengthen our controls and identify when the schemes are happening out there. Ransomware, for example, where a company's computer gets uh, taken over and they're asked to pay money for uh, the encryption keys, typically in cryptocurrency form, uh, to unlock their computer. You know, we're diligent. We're monitoring for those types of transactions, whether the customer tells us or not. We're, we're, we're on the lookout for that because it does represent risk of money moving to a criminal element. Uh, we're on the lookout for, uh, you know, concentration accounts. And a concentration account is where lots of money from different sources, let's say a, a SERB payment, for example, starts getting funneled into a single account, usually for the purpose of then moving that money out or, or offshore. So those concentration accounts are the types of things that we look for. Uh, so that's a, just a quick example. I don't want to give away the keys to the kingdom, but uh, we're always uh, we're always on the lookout for the latest uh, techniques uh, being used against uh, our customers and against the bank. Yeah, I know you're obviously sensitive to not speaking in too much detail about <laughs> about what the bad guys are doing, so you won't be giving other bad guys some ideas. Maybe switch into another area. We can also talk a little bit about some of those red flags that you uh, that you look for, and that is around the issue of uh, human trafficking that you mentioned a little bit. Canadian Human Trafficking Awareness Day in Canada is February 22nd. Uh, I know you've been involved personally in fighting these uh, these horrible crimes that I think many Canadians are not aware, like how much of a domestic it is, issue it is, that it's not just, you know, people being smuggled into Europe and, uh, you know, in crates or whatever, uh, that it is an issue here. Can you speak a little bit about your own work over the years in trying to address this issue and how you brought it into the bank and, and how the bank responds? Uh, you're exactly right. I mean, this this uh, problem of human trafficking is labor trafficking, sexual trafficking, uh, it's online child exploitation of children. The, these are the crimes that have hit Canada hard and hit hit the global uh, world hard, especially in, in the time of the pandemic. The amount of online activity and grooming has just grown, grown by leaps and bounds, uh, up 50% or if not more reports to the national hotlines that uh, we're hearing about uh, this year alone. Uh, but at the root, you know, this is uh, uh, trafficking in persons. And you're right, many times it's it's taking advantage of those that are local and moving them around the country or uh, taking advantage of those that are, that are less fo- uh, fortunate or, or vulnerable and uh, exploiting them. It, it also often involves stealing their identity and ruining their their financial lives. And so, uh, you know, it's been uh, clearly a passion of mine for uh, the better part of five or six years to say, how can we address this and stop this through uh, the work that we do each and every day in in anti-money laundering and and financial crime prevention? And we've identified over the course of time 
a number of typologies that we can monitor for uh, within the financial sector, but it's not just the financial sector, right? It's the social media sector, it's the, the technology sector, it's the communication sector. All of these go hand in hand, and it's my hope and desire that we continue to see more and more alignment uh, between all these uh, uh, these forces so that we can con continue to do good. And, and the uh, Human Trafficking Awareness Day in Canada is a day to, to really call that out and speak to it. And so we're working... Uh, Again, to identify these patterns of behavior, we, uh, Project Protect was launched in 2015, 2016, uh, in conjunction with our, our regulator, FinTrack, here in Canada, and typologies were published. In other words, these are things to look for in financial transactions for human trafficking. And then just this uh, recent uh, December, Scotiabank worked uh, extensively with FinTrack and we were the sponsor of Project Shadow, which is an effort focused on online child sexual exploitation and identifying the patterns of financial activity associated with that. And I'll just give you a few examples of, of these patterns so that people can understand what I'm talking about. Uh, in the case of online child sexual exploitation, uh, we often see money transfers for $10, $50, dollars usually uh, to have some nefarious viewing or something of that sort. So very disturbing topic. Uh, in terms of the human trafficking, especially before the pandemic, we would see patterns of uh, hotel room, uh, uh, you know, rentals, short-term rental, uh, unusual tr one-way travel patterns. And so some of these were the typical typologies that we would see associated with that. So, um, you know, these are public documents uh, that you can read about them on FinTrack's website. Uh, again, so they're, they're available uh, to banks, uh, but others in the, in the public can read them as well. But we're very proud of the work we've done uh, through these efforts, uh, at least in the Project Protect. It's reported that over 100 victims, some as young as 12 and 14, have been freed from the vices of human trafficking here in Canada. There's been both reactive and proactive disclosures to law enforcement. A reactive disclosure means that um, they're reacting to something they've heard about in the news, but proactive means maybe we saw something financially uh, first before law enforcement ever even knew about it. So those are the real wins. And, and I think over... 60 to 70 percent of the human trafficking uh, work has been proactive in nature. So a, a true testament to all the banks that have contributed to that. I'd also like to mention our, uh, our work, uh, if you don't mind me, just keep going on a couple things, uh, Stephen. Our work on uh, the financial access uh, pilot project that we've had in place for over a year, and we're just now formalizing this to uh, a formal program. And this gives uh, opportunity to survivors and victims of human trafficking to re-enable their financial life, as I was mentioning earlier, often gets wrecked by the traffickers. And so we give them uh, free checking and savings accounts, but also looking now to include a credit card, a small credit product to help these people truly rebuild their credit, because that's one of the hardest things to do when, you're, when your life has been victimized in such a way. So we're very excited about uh, the expansion of this initiative and working with uh, multiple uh, NGOs here in Canada that are themselves helping uh, 
traffic victims recover their lives. That's really interesting. Taking it from that uh, sort of higher level perspective of, you know, almost, you know, working with, I guess, FinTrack and uh, and police to identify the problem and then going to work directly with the people who are affected by the problem. It feels like uh, maybe an odd thing for I don't think people would it would occur to people that banks would be involved in in those kinds of activities, but it must be quite rewarding from your perspective uh, to be able to help people like that. Well, it truly is rewarding, but it, you know, it does fall within the mandate of, of the bank. You know, how do we help our community? And you think about ESG, um, environmental, uh, social, and, and governance kind of factors that, that we address as a company. And this has really contributed and helped establish Scotiabank in terms of that S component and the, and the social good that we do um, uh, within within uh, both our market, both immediately here in Canada, but also globally, right? We're, 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 we're taking these themes, we're discussing Project Shadow, we're discussing Project Protect on a global basis, as you, as you mentioned, and uh, just recently addressed the UN Office on Drugs and, and Crimes uh, down in uh, Latin America. And they're saying, how can we take typologies such as this and start creating an impact in this market. Uh, the, the forces that are uh, trafficking victims in those, in, in those markets, you know, in our uh, Latin American Caribbean region, sometimes are even more devastating and challenging to address than they are uh, here in Canada because, you know, it's, it's a systemic problem. It's not just a, a, an isolated problem. It's a very much a systemic problem. Maybe just to take a step back, when you talk about the typologies and some of the work that you, you or that we and other financial institutions and FinTrack have done to uh, to identify the wrongdoers, I assume technology is a significant component of uh, that kind of work and other aspects of uh, financial crime uh, management. Uh, what role does technology play and how has that evolved? Well, it's it's both technology and people and 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 data. Uh, those are the real three key components that make this program successful. Technology has been huge in, in terms of us helping us organize all the information using some advanced techniques like machine learning to look for these patterns of behavior. How do you tell a fifty dollar uh, human trafficking transaction from a fifty dollar uh, uh, you know, uh, massage parlor uh, routine purchase. I mean, it, it could be tricky, uh, just just to put it bluntly. So we've leveraged into technology, but also human intelligence, adverse media. You start identifying one thread of something that looks suspicious and you pull on it, you find the connections, you build the network, and that's how you get to the core of the problem. And so we're using a lot of this uh, advanced uh, graph network technology risk scoring technology to help us identify these nodes and quickly identify all the connected um, uh, links to these types of transactions. Sometimes it begins simply with just a, a, a piece of news that we, we pull it up and say, hey, we might have some information on this. We'll make a referral to law enforcement and we'll follow the money. So you say, follow the money. And, and yes, that's exactly what we do. And we're all just doing our part to really make uh, society a better place and 
and technology is a huge part of that. You don't consider yourself part of law enforcement, I assume, although in some respects you play at least a, not peripheral, but a, a role on the side alongside law enforcement and doing it because it sounds almost like investigative activity, what you're talking about. You're exactly right. And, you know, it's it's hard to tie this in directly with, uh, you know, being law enforcement because we're clearly not. But the passion that we bring, knowing that we're making a difference, is, I think, in many ways the same as those great people in our law enforcement communities, uh, you know, serving each and every day. We feel like, you know, we can make a difference by finding these uh criminal behaviors and, and getting them in the hands of the authorities. And so there is a passion that drives many of us in AML uh, beyond just, you know, coming to work for a job, right? This is a, it, it's a personal motivating thing. And, and many of us put uh, ourselves uh, incredibly hard into this because we know we're, we're making a difference. All right. One last question. What's next? Put, make you put on your prognosticator hat. What do, what's what's coming down the road for how, how banks continue to do this kind of work, how you work with regulators and law enforcement to, to continue fighting these battles? Uh, I'll take that question on a couple of fronts. Uh, here directly within Scotia, you know, we're continuing to build out our, our program, making sure that we can run everything with the right cadence and the systems in a business as usual capacity to really tie everything together from a, a global perspective, uh, linking uh, you know, our controls on an on a international basis in the ways we think about risk. And then when we look externally, uh, we hope to see a beneficial ownership registry here in Canada at some point in the future. Uh, there's been articles in the paper on that. I think I've, I've written about it and, and spoken about it on a couple of occasions. But this would give us transparency into a lot of these uh, um, uh, opaque uh, real estate vehicles and shell companies that uh, the bad money seeks out here in Canada. Uh, we're continuing to really say, how can this regime uh, here be more effective in terms of its prosecutorial side? Unfortunately, the ability to prosecute uh, those that are responsible for hosting data for example, of, of online child exploitation is, is almost abysmal uh, in this country. You know, uh, uh, one instance, 17,000 images and three individuals only got a $1,000 fine apiece. I mean, this is ruining the lives of the most vulnerable children of society. And, and yet, uh, you know, the teeth aren't there. So I think that's another area, too, I want to see continue to change. And to the extent we can play a role uh, as a bank, or I can play as a role as an individual and a, and a concerned father, you know, that's what it's about. So as we look forward uh, to what's coming next, I'd say continued change and continued hard work to, to make an impact and make a difference. Uh, the bad guys aren't stopping just because of the pandemic and nor are we. Okay, well, I think we will leave it there. Stuart, I want to thank you for taking part. It's been really interesting. We could have uh, we could have kept going for quite a while longer, but I will let you get back to your more important work. Um, but thanks so much for taking part today. Well, thank you for having me and best all. I've been speaking with Stuart Davis. Stuart is Executive Vice President, Financial Crimes Risk Management and Group Chief Anti-Money Laundering Officer at Scotiabank. Thanks for listening to Pandanomics. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe on Apple, Google, or Spotify, and we will see you soon. Please see the Scotiabank website for legal disclaimers.